Well, here we are once again, focusing in on the issues that are important to the African-American community. And today we're going to be talking about civil rights. We're going to talk about civil rights. We're looking at uh, some of the issues that are taking place in terms of civil rights today. You know, I never was big on civil rights. You know, I, when I was a young kid, you know, all the leaders that I knew were getting shot and put in jail. So I wasn't a big fan of civil rights when I was a kid growing up in Betsy Ross Elementary. But, you know, we saw over and over again during my time leaders who were about the business of civil rights getting shot or killed or put in jail. And just so that we can just keep it 100, police brutality and blacks being killed by police have been going on for a very long time, all my life there were issues of young men being caught by the police and being killed. So that particular aspect of, you know, the civil rights movement, that wasn't something that surprised me or fazed me. It fazed me, but it didn't surprise me that, you know, that was happening because I've seen that my entire life. Looking at just how people acknowledge, you know, what civil rights is, they say the right to life is a moral principle. You know, um, civil and political rights are a class of rights that protect individuals' freedom from infringement by governments, uh, social organizations, and private individuals. They ensure one's entitlement to participate in the civil and political life of the society and state without discrimination or rep repression. Civil rights include the ensuring of people's physical and mental integrity, life and safety, and protection from discrimination on grounds such as race and gender, sexual orientation, national origin, color, age, political affiliation, ethnicity, religion, and last of all, disability and individual rights such as privacy and the freedom of thought, speech, religion, press, assembly, and movement. Political rights include natural justice in law, such as the rights of the accused, including the right to a fair trial and due process, the right to speak or redress a legal remedy, and rights of participation in civil society and politics, such as freedom of association, the right to assemble, the right to petition, the right of self-defense, and the right to vote. Civil and political rights from the original and main part of international human rights, they comprise the first portion of the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights with economic, social, and cultural rights comprising the second portion. So, you know, this is, I just wanted to give you some information, listeners, about civil rights and what we're going to be talking about today. What's the new civil rights? You know, they say, you know, uh, there's, a, there's, there's always something new going on in terms of changing and expanding the, the role of civil and political rights uh, from the original. And so what we're going to talk about a little today, and I've I just been uh, blessed with the presence of, the, for the last time, my brother uh, uh, Zebra. Dyer Hall before he leaves for Cornell University. He's going to come in and we're going to talk a little about the. you know, I noticed that disability was the last thing they had on the civil rights and I know that you deal with disability and accommodation, but they had all the other, you know, rights there, but disability was, the, was bringing up the caboose in terms of civil and political rights. And so I wonder uh, 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 you know, what, uh, how does that make you feel I mean, you know, because, you know, accommodation and disability, and when we talk about new civil rights, like I say, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure um, 
when when I when I hear the term civil rights, that I'm you know I get all excited. I don't get all a quiver because it's been an issue my entire life. I mean, I've been dealing with it my entire life, and and for me, it's been you know uh, a struggle just to survive. You know, so yeah. civil. I'm not sure how that plays a part in it. You know, but mm-hmm. tell me what you think about disability bringing up the caboose. Hello, Zeb. How you doing? I'm doing well, Doc. I'm doing well. Good to see you on this uh, Saturday morning. You know, uh, before we jump into dialogue and all that, I want to say congratulations. It's graduation seasons. I'm going to two graduations today, and so uh, just want to say congratulations to the people that's graduating and stuff like that. And so uh, understanding that graduation is just a new step to a new journey. And so uh, just prepare yourself because once you graduate, things start to get a little bit more real at every level that you graduate at. So, um, but yeah, this whole disability thing bringing up the caboose, man, um, being in the background. It's interesting because most of the time when you think of the word disability or you think of the word handicap, um, if you go back in history, that was considered a sin. Uh, And so even from a religious standpoint, uh, people with disability was mistreated. Uh, When you go into the medical landscape of things back then, um, if you had a disability, um, you had to do whatever your physician ordained was uh, necessary for you to be fixed or cured. And so um, when you start to unpack disability, it's interesting that it follows the caboose because if you look back early on in our American history, what we consider to be a disability. And so sometimes immigrate, if you was immigrant, you was a disability. You had a disability, consider had a disability. If you was a prostitute, you was considered to have a disability. Um, if, if you was a slave, you was considered to have a disability. In some contexts, if you was poor, you was considered to have a disability. And so when you're talking about it, bringing up the rear, um, those categories was considered less than. And so it was a point in time in history that if you had a disability, they were literally walk to the balcony and drop you off. The word handicap itself actually comes from the point of people with disabilities uh, having deficiencies. They're putting them out on the street and so they have their hand in their uh, their cap in their hand banging for money and that's where you get the term actually handicap and so for me when you're talking about this I think about how they used to use the n-word and uh, in, in a derogatory way towards blacks and you think about how they use derogatory language as it relates to handicap and things like that and you start to see the connection. For example, when you got immigrants, they used to give immigrants tests and language they didn't know and say that they were disabled, they couldn't read, and they couldn't write, just so they couldn't get certain benefits. And so there's a whole dynamic... When you're talking about civil rights as it relates to disability, uh, sometimes when you made the statement, some people want to survive... People with disabilities sometimes just want access, so they have the opportunity to be civil. Absolutely, uh, and you know, and it's interesting that you were, were talking about that because uh, the recent news has, has kind of played itself right into that conversation. When we see the the, the latest information and how uh, uh, the government is going to deal with DACA and how it's going to deal with immigration and how you know, like uh, uh, the the pronouncement by the uh, the POTUS, you know that basically you have to have certain levels of skills in 
order to enter into relationship to the United States now. So it's not a matter of just you coming and then, you know, working through some stuff. There's certain there's a certain skill level you have to, you know, meet and acquire prior to you entering in, being able to step across the mm -hmm. border and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Even though, you know, when we look out into the landscape in terms of American culture, American society, mm -hmm. most of those individuals who are are being labeled disabled, mm -hmm. you know, from the historical context that you would put it, mm -hmm. are putting their backs to most of the service and work in this culture and this society. That's oh, that's yeah. that's an interesting kind of correlation that we see, and and how how easy it was to slip into that kind of conversation and language, mm -hmm. and how 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 our individuals are not basically responding in any way into to the kinds of stuff that's going on in, in terms of that. Why do you think they're not picking up uh, on the nuance uh, of the coding of these individuals as somehow being um, enabled to, to, to function in American culture, American society as a, uh, a threat and a, another challenge to the whole issue of accommodation and disability? Uh, for, for, for one, I mean, our world itself, whether it be um, in the corporate world, whether it be education, uh, whether it be our day-to-day -day lives, um, the world is um, created for, uh, most of the time, able-bodied people. And so ableism is a real thing. And so one of the things that ableism says on the front, let's just say the world is meant for able-bodied people and it discriminates against people with disabilities. And so we need to start from that onset that ableism is a real thing. And so when I'm even in the school system and I'm trying to accommodate students, if people don't have an understanding that ableism exists, you're not putting your uh, classroom or you're not most of the time teaching your curriculum for people that are deaf. And so as your class is all verbal, how, you, how are they accessing that information? And so when you're talking about how are we looking at accommodations, how are we looking at how people are being treated, think about people not having access, right? And and, and right now, this is mental Ill, mental mental health awareness month right now. Right. Uh, when you're talking about how are we dealing with accommodations, right? If you think about people in urban communities right now, and you take Chicago, for example, if you take the west side of Chicago and you take the south side of Chicago, most of those mental health facilities have been shut down. Absolutely. And they have to go all the way to the north side most of the time to or the suburbs of this or the suburbs to receive services, right? When we're talking about this and we want to connect these things from a historical standpoint, if you think about over 400 years ago when we was put in slavery, what counseling did we ever receive? What therapy did we ever receive? Think about black bodies in the sense of being mistreated and subjugated and objectified to testing to see if certain uh, drugs work, to see if certain procedure worked, and all those kind of things. And so when you're talking about in 2019, uh, I know I jumped around Hold, a little bit. Holding the head in syphilis experiments. The, 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 all that kind of stuff, syphilis and everything else. Even when you think about the outbreak right now when we're dealing with the mumps and things like that, measles, measles. How, how does that happen? There's only certain people that have access to those type of uh, strands of diseases and things like that, and so that has to be released. And so when, when, when you're thinking about this kind of stuff and you're thinking about what's going on in our community, it is hard sometimes for African Americans. It's hard sometimes for underrepresented people to go receive the services that they need because all of their <laughs> life and their ancestors, they've been subjugated and objectified to the services and mistreated most of the times and so it's hard and so I think for me 
when you want to bring some of this stuff home and some people ask sometimes when you ask a question about civil rights and you ask the questions about disabilities and why you do the work that you do, this gives me an avenue to connect something that everybody experienced. You're born with ableism, you're going to die with it, and anything in between, you might have a diagnosis. And so this gives me the ability to push it in a different kind of way because I understand my oppression as a black man. And I think sometimes families need to come in that are underrepresented, specifically black, and see a person that is black in charge of the person that's going to be making their decision around accommodation because culturally sometimes there are some differences there. Okay, so but 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 just for the listening audience, I want you to slow down a bit and, and break down ableism. What okay. are you saying when you say ableism? Okay, ableism, ableism is basically oppression towards people with disabilities, okay? And so ableism is basically in favor for able-bodied people, meaning that if you have a disability, you wouldn't be considered able-bodied. And so to break this down in a larger context, because I have a philosophical view about that, right? When we're talking about disabilities, I'm a firm believer that a person with a disability is not disabled, okay? The environment itself makes them disabled. So and just so, give me the legal. What's, what, what's the... What's the, what's the, the positions in terms of discrimination as relates to ableism how how do i operate inside ableism against someone who is disabled uh for example how could you operate that way you being a professor and you know that you have a blind student in your class and you hand out a worksheet and you start to describe what's on that worksheet knowing that that student can't access that mm. And I just and I just ignore the fact that you ignore it and you keep teaching all along versus mm -hmm. saying, I know I have this blind student in my class. I'm going to send this send this blind student the worksheet in advance so they can have access to it in the way that they can access that worksheet, that document. That way, when they're going along in and in class, they can follow along with the class. Man. And I'm and I'm saying that, you know, um, when I started looking out on the uh, the. panorama of academia, you know, in terms of the, the people who are taking uh, advantage of it. More and more, I'm seeing, you know, brothers and sisters arriving, and they've got some type of disability, you know, that, that is very, very pronounced, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that the institutions the, that I've worked in, you know, have taken that really seriously. So that whole ableism issue is a real issue. Well, 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 part of the problem with that ableism problem is the fact that when they're coming to the institution, sometimes they're coming in and they're looking at their documentation, they're looking at their diagnosis, and then they're trying to put accommodations in place. They don't come into the situation, most universities and most people that are given accommodation, they don't slow down and say, wait, who is this person in my institution before I start to talk about their diagnosis? Mm-hmm. And so let me be a little bit more clear. If I'm at a religious institution... The person that I'm receiving might be a part of the LGBT community. I need to understand that dynamic sometimes before I place some of the accommodations in place. I need to be able to recognize sometimes that if I have a young lady in engineering, what does that mean for this woman to be an engineer before I get to her diagnosis? Because the environment itself might heighten and manifest her diagnosis for symptoms to come out in a certain way. I see what you're saying. If, if If I am a black male or a black woman in a predominantly white institution, 
is the environment making my depression and anxiety manifest in a different way, right? And so most of the time we're coming in and saying, this person have this diagnosis. These are some accommodations that we can put in place. We don't slow down enough to say, what is the social construct we're putting these individuals in? Zeb, they're not having that kind of conversation. Come on, man. I pass by people every day in institutions. I'm talking about big wigs, individuals who's supposed to be brainiacs. Those, that's a term for people being very smart, if those of y'all don't even understand. Okay, <laughs> you know. But, I mean, you know, I see these people all the time, man. Nobody's thinking about that. Nobody's worried about whether or not, you know, you walking with a limp or, you know, there's other issues that you're going through or whether or not you're having high anxiety. You know, uh, you know, people tell you, go get a dog, you know, uh, or do something. I mean, you know, they, they, they don't, I mean, people are not looking at how do we deconstruct and reconstruct a, a, a institutional model to meet the needs of individuals who are coming in less than. That's not the conversation that's being you, had. You know why that's a struggle? Because some of those same individuals don't even realize how they present in the environment that they're trying to accommodate the student in. Yeah, okay. I mean, I get that. But I'm saying these individuals are individuals of power. And, they, you know, they, I mean, uh, your recent, you know, impact of, on institutions kind of reflect that. The fact that, you know, people are not are resistant of the fact that, you know, I need to stop this movement toward my own interests and be concerned about folks who are coming in my institution and seeing and actually literally putting more time in finding out who they are than insulating myself in the institution. The institution comes first is what I'm trying to say as opposed to individual. Now, how do we change that will be, you know, is the area of what I would call civil rights. Do you think that accommodations and disability is, in fact, the new civil rights uh, I, I wouldn't say this arena. I, I wouldn't say it's new, but I think it's a, a, a avenue that we really got to explore because disability and our intersectionality with other identities and demographics is so important. And so, uh, when you think about it, in your family you have it, white people they have it, brown people they have it. LGBTQ, they have it. It's not a community that does not have, is not affected by ableism or disability or diagnosis or any of that of the sort. And so that is something that connects all people. The way that resources is divided is not connected the same. And so that's where we need to start to tackle that issue. I think that if we start to talk about accommodations in a different way, I think it starts to unpack what certain people are going through. If you talk social construct around universal design, around how do we accommodate people so they have equal access and opportunity, then we're starting to talk about what does it mean for that woman to be on that board of all men? I'll give you a prime example. When they say, well, 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 what does that even mean? Say that this woman has a chronic illness. She wants to be, she's on this board with all men. The attire most of the time for business women is to be in heels. If she has to wear heels and she has a chronic illness, how does she then stand around in the meetings, in the sessions, walk around and do those things with chronic illness without looking like she's weak? Well, I mean, you know, the, the, the whole looking like you're weak thing in itself is, is is problematic, I think, when you start talking about males and females being on boards. I mean, I mean, uh, when we look at board, board of directors or we look at representation in terms of corporations or who leads what in this society, then that, that whole standard of what that character ought to be uh, is reflected toward 
males. I mean, you know, even uh, when we look at CEOs and how they dress, uh, as women move up the ranks in terms of becoming the chief you know, economic officer or becoming the, you know, the, the, the leader in those particular fields, their demeanor, their character, their actual dress, dress changes to fit the mold of the predominant matrix, which is a male matrix. Now, that gone with saying, I get what you're saying in terms of disability. I'm just simply saying it's so pervasive. It's, it's, it's as pervasive as we see racism, ageism, sexism, all the isms that we see. This whole ableism thing seems to be as so pervasive that it's going to be difficult for people to get a handle on how do we determine how to hold institutions accountable to to addressing these kinds of concerns. What do you say to that? I, I think it's going to take some people willing to say the things that need to be said and cha- challenging the status quo. I'll give you a prime example on a very simplistic thing that hurt people from getting jobs and succeeding in life. How I shake your hand. That is a very maleistic Approach and most of the time, white maleistic approach to shaking hands. In our culture, as black people, as black male to black male, we normally don't shake hands how they would shake what they would consider professional handshaking. Take a person with a disability who doesn't have the mobility to shake hands in that fashion, might not get that job. Take a woman in a specific culture that is not allowed to shake hands with men, right? Think about if we accommodate... a problem in Saudi with right, that. Right, right. And so think about how, if we start to look at how do we accommodate people, right? Not everybody have a disability. That's not what I'm articulating. But if we start to look at the bases and start to treat things about how do we accommodate it, no difference than right now. This radio station is accommodating us to get to our listeners. This phone that I am holding right now is accommodating me for the people on Facebook to listen to this. My car accommodated me to get here. See, but when people have disabilities, we consider them as less than. So they shouldn't have the ability to get to where we're going. And so that's when you're talking about when your students are coming into the institution, if you give them accommodations, you're making it easier on them. But accommodations, I mean, you know, you could talk about technology accommodating or you can talk about mechanical accommodations in terms of, you know, things that assist me to get me where I want to go or things that help me communicate. But when you talk about accommodations in a human factor, when you start talking about individuals who are head of departments or people who are head of institutions, then accommodations develops this um, ambiguous quality in terms of it, 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 it really is, uh, you know, it really relies on the individual. Is the individual sensitive to and willing to stand up for the needs and accommodations of individuals who are disabled? And I, I'll be, be frank with you, this is 2019, and I'm, you know, I'm at a, um, you know, Midwestern University. I don't see any accommodations going on for you know folks who are there with dis- disabilities to a great degree. It's a, it was at a level, but you know 
I mean, you know, all doors don't open. All doors ain't wide enough for 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 wheelchairs. All you know, uh, there's there's not braille on all the you know the entries so mm-hmm. that people who are blind can read where they're at. I mean, you know, it's just a whole bunch of stuff that's being left out on this whole process. And I mean, and and that's not even the conversation that people are having. I mean, it's it's just not the top priority of institutions. One one of the reasons is because they don't see the value added to giving people with disabilities access and opportunities. And so we live in a day and age where they want to put something in place and they want to automatically know the outcome. If you give this student this, are they going to be able to to do this, right? Microwave age. And so for me, I approach it in a sense, if I give them this accommodation, for one, I'm only making it equitable. So I'm not giving them something that is going to hinder them or I'm not giving them something that's going to make it easier than the next student that uh, is sitting next to them, which might be their peer. Uh, the next thing on that says is when I when I want to give them this accommodation and I want to give them equitable access, the opportunity that I'm giving them might be the same opportunity Einstein was finally given to unlock some of the things that we have today. Sure. And, and sometimes people are interacting with people and they can never find what somebody with a disability might find because their brains wired differently. They look at things differently. I'll give you a prime example. We had a student at Valparaiso University. He did some research at another institution. He found a pattern they've been looking for for the last five years within his first two weeks of being there. Now he's on the spectrum but his brain is wired very differently and he sees things differently. So he sees things that we would not be able to see sometimes. Okay. And so I'll give you another prime example. When I coach college basketball, our manager was on a spectrum. He had a photographic memory. He would go into halftime and he would break down the play of what they were running because us as none of the coaches could break it down and remember when they put in a new set, we didn't go over in game film. But he can remember, coach, they're going to pass down here, they're going to go over here, then they're going to back pick, and then two guards going to come at the top of the key for a three. And we can remember it verbatim by seeing it one time. And so my thing is, how do we put people in places, no different than we do in sports, no different than we do in school, how do we put people with disabilities in places in society so their skills and t- talent make us better than what we already are because there's some things that able-bodied people can't do that d- people with disabilities just can do because they look at it and they approach it very differently in ways we would never be able to. You're listening to WVLP 103.1 on your FM dial. Uh, this is Morning Black, and let me just put a heads-up reminder that there is going to be a walkathon and runathon for what's it, autism in Chicago? They're going to do that, and they, you know their families are going to be walking together, and they're trying to raise you know money for support and research for autism and you know the other things that go along with that. Uh, we're talking today about civil rights and and accommodations and disabilities, and I have in the studio. Zebediah Hall. Um, so, 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 Zeb, um, when you look out into the communities of colors, uh, specifically African-American and Hispanic communities, you know, how are we handling this? Uh, I mean, how do we deal with, I mean, you know, I remember when I was young, there were several children that had cerebral palsy or they had, you know, autism or they had disability. And those families basically were uh, left to their own. I mean, you know, they kind of handled their business and, you know, we were aware 
of it, but you know, the families that are, were around in the neighborhood, they didn't have a process. There wasn't anything there that could help them figure out what they could do to be supportive. I mean, you know, every now and then a neighbor would go by and say, do you need a little extra this or extra that? You know, we would do the neighborly thing. But for the most part, you know, folks with accommodations basically are fending for themselves. Mm -hmm. Why is that, you think? Uh, I I think there's some historical context to it. Um, One of the historical contexts to it is if you was enslaved back then and you had a young man or a young daughter that was growing up, one of the things you would do is uh, when, the, when the master would come around and the master says, I see your boy or your daughter growing up and they they, they they doing well, they come along really well. No, no, master. They, they, no, no, master. Like, basically trying to denigrate them and say they're not as smart or they're not as talented, they're not as gifted as they are because you didn't want the master to, to take your son or daughter and sell them off and you don't want your master to take mm-hmm. your son or daughter and displace them for you. And so some of that's a historical historical context. And then when you're talking about the historical context of how blacks and brown bodies, Latinx, African-Americans was treated in America as it relates to being test dummies for a lot of things, like I mentioned earlier. And then if you look at how, per se, black boys, when it comes to literacy rates and uh, those kind of things in the school system, and you start to look at holistically how you're being stigmatized. So now not only are you black, but now you have a disability. So your skin color already hurts you. Now your diagnosis hurt you. And so now we shy away from the resources that we sometimes should have. And sometimes in our communities, we don't have the resources. And so one of the things that we would do and some of the language that we would use in the African-American community, sometimes you will hear them say, can't get right. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's can't get right over there, right? Mm-hmm. And and what they mean by that is can't get right has a disability, but the, the, the community has labeled him or her as can't get right. And so in the midst of labeling him or her as can't get right, everybody in the community, everybody at the park know who that individual is. Wow. They know how that individual operates. So what happens is the community protects that individual from outsiders. I had, well, we had we had a brother called Eyes. Okay. And he was legally blind. Mm-hmm. His glasses was, you know, I mean, you know, we're talking about bottle, you know, yeah. bottle glasses. I mean, you know, yeah. he couldn't see, he actually couldn't see. Yeah. And, but we, but we always let him play, you know, whole court, yeah. you know, we play ball, you know, and, you know, and Hey, you, you're, you're absolutely 100% on that, yeah. that, that, you know, we just kind of put the, we, as was just a part of the team, you know, and, and his, his inability or ability didn't have anything to do with his, he, if he called next and then, you know, he could pick his team and be like that, like anybody else. I mean, you know, so and you're right about that. You know, there, there was a, um, a empathy, uh, sympathy in relationship to dealing with the issues of uh, disability that we saw that, uh, you know, we just compensated for and said that you're part of the community. But you don't see that as much any longer. I mean, people are very self-centered now. I, in fact, uh, let me just do uh, this shout out. There's a there's a brother that's going to be fighting tonight for the, for, for the heavyweight champion mm-hmm. his name is Wilder mm-hmm. and he's and believe it or not he, his daughter one, he has his oldest daughter has a disability mm-hmm. and one of the things he was saying before he was getting he said you know the reason why I'm doing this he said, don't do, he said don't get it twisted you know I'm not you know I'm not a big animalistic brute but this is the quickest way that I could feed feed my family and take care of my daughter who is disabled mm-hmm. there was no other way that I would be able to take care of my daughter if I wasn't doing what I was doing you know so 
you know, just just, just to say that, that it's a very relevant kind of issue that we're talking about oh, here, yeah. you know. And, and, and not only that, uh, when, when we're talking about the can't get rights in our community, right, um, we embrace them. They can call next, but they don't have the resources they actually need to succeed in life sometimes. Okay, and, that's and, what I'm talking and, about. And so as the community has embraced that individual, and we're not making fun of them, Can't an outsider cannot come in our community and make fun of can't get right, right? Mm. And so when I say can't get right for my listener orders, that would be a person in the black community that might have a disability, might be on the spectrum, uh, might have cerebral palsy, might have some type of diagnosis that the whole community knows about, uh, sometimes presents a little differently and we would articulate that as can't get right mm -hmm. whether wrong or right but I want to be very truthful with this conversation right right yeah, I mean you know yeah. we're not we're not we're not saying that this is a standard that people necessarily need to follow we're just talking about the reality, reality that we, yeah. we see in our community yeah. you know and how we deal with it and, and, and so when you think about individuals like that that can call next that get along whether they have the ability or do not have the ability imagine if they had the resources around their diagnosis so they had equitable access and the things that they might be able to do and unlock because all of their lives they have just been getting along without the appropriate resources. I think about individuals sometimes that are super smart uh, who cannot read. Think about what you unlock for those individuals that have made it to the age of 30 or 40 and can't read, but when you talk to them, they're a genius mind, and you look at them, you say, wow, what if that individual could read and things like that? Or you have things going on where you might have an individual that might have a diagnosis that is math-related, right? And, and and if they got a diagnosis sometimes that's math-related, they're not able to do algebra or certain things, right? And our community having a lack of understanding that there could be disabilities and diagnosis around math, we at the table, kitchen table beating our son or daughter down screaming and yelling at them because they're not getting math problems right it's so important for me to have these conversations because i believe when we're talking about access and opportunity sometimes our approach is to scream and yell at our black kids when they don't know how to read and write and things like that versus giving them resources that can give them equitable access to those things but, but you can't you can't really you can't can't really blame parents for that reaction because they're under the pressure to survive as well and and they don't have access to accommodations in a way to really help that child so the frustration of uh, uh, of a child being in you know a, a, a situation where they can't optimally do the things that they need to do in order to advance can be a frustrate uh, a frustrating thing for uh, a parent now here's the the question i'm asking what then um, should be happening in those communities by those folks who are able to assist those parents. What's going on, and 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 how do you see the work that you're doing? Because I I, I get you know this being something that's happening in terms of academia. Okay, I get that, and I mm -hmm. get I get you know your advancement on this particular issue as an individual mm -hmm. in institutions, but brother. There, there's a whole bunch of people mm -hmm. that's not going to ever pass those grandiose halls mm -hmm. that we might see ourselves, or supposed grandiose halls that mm -hmm. we might see. How do you see mm -hmm. this being addressed by individuals in our community? I mean, you know, as opposed to having to make it and struggle through a point where till they get to Zebediah, mm. right? right? What happens to the, the kids who don't make it there? I mean, yeah. you know, I was in Chicago, and there was there's a full 
45 percent of kids who, who, who probably won't graduate. Mm. Other ones that do graduate, about half of that number is going to be marketable, mm. probably due to some of the things that you're talking about today in terms of accommodations. Mm-hmm. How do we address that? Uh, for one, I want to say I, I'm definitely not blaming the parents, but I definitely want the parents to have a better understanding and dive deeper. I think there are some opportunities there sometimes where sometimes people will take a check because they can get a check because their child might have a disability. Sure. Is that a source of income? And I'm not saying that's the holistic approach to it. Uh, but but for me, um, I don't. I guess when I do the work, I think about the people that are going to graduate sometimes, right? So the people that I work with sometimes at an institution is going to graduate, right? I think you use your platform in the way that you have to leverage resources in a way that it can help the community. And so what I mean by that is I need to be visible in my community, for one, right? When, 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 when I go back home and I go on the west side of Chicago, everybody knows that I work with people with disabilities. So for, for one, I need to be visible in the community. But how do I then use the power that I have in the community to then leverage what's going on at the institution? Because the people, for a prime example, this means dear to my heart. One of the reasons I'm so intrigued about going to work at Cornell University, it's an Ivy League university. Let's, let's be honest about that. But the people that are going to graduate are going to be the people that are leading in our world. If I could start to change their mindset, not for the students that actually receive disabilities, the institution's mindset. If you could start to change the president's mindset and things like that of universities, those are the people that have leverage to change laws and policies. I don't want to do this work from a standpoint of saying, I want to only stay inside of the institution. How can I then use the institution to leverage federal policy and law changes so then it then affects people in a different way? If I don't, if we don't make an impact and start to change the world around disabilities, people are always going to be looked at as less than. There are people right now that are very successful with disabilities that won't mention they have a diagnosis because they're afraid they're going to get ridiculed. How do we get into a place where we start to change the language? No difference than we change the language in the 60s around black folks coming to, coming to, coming to university. They used to say Negro as it relates to diversity and race relations. How do we start to change that dynamic? Because if we don't, what you're basically saying, right, to your point about the people who are not marketable, right? Right. So what are you saying to Chicago, Chicago public school system that does not have the, act, uh, the, the, the appropriate resources for students with disabilities? So you're automatically saying you don't have access, you're automatically less than, you automatically don't get any resources outside of what your community have. We have already made and decided what you're going to be as we move forward and you want to talk about this from a lower level as we move forward and and, 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 and states start to go that they're going to determine at a young age what program or what career a student or a kid should have watch how it hurts students with disabilities absolutely I mean, and, you and, know. and so the hegemonic society does not allow for people with disabilities to have access like other people have access. And that's part of the problem is sometimes we want to do it on a very mundane level. I think we got to start to challenge the churches in the community. The churches in the communities do a lot of things. When do they ever talk about disabilities? Well, I mean, I think you're right. I think that you're talking about, if you're talking about not just churches, but certainly churches, but also businesses, businesses. also also individuals, organizations, and things of that nature. We, we, we are so uh, obsessed with putting our best foot forward to sometimes, you know, we, we look at accommodations and disabilities as, okay, so we know that exists, but that's not something that we want to take the time, the energy, and the efforts. We don't to, want to market that. We don't want to market that. Yeah, but... but uh, 
even more intriguing about this particular issue is the fact that um, it's it's not the it's not the priority of uh, I mean you know when you look at uh, all that we do in terms of African American leadership in African American society, you know the things that we do, the NAACP award, the Stella award, you know all the stuff that we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, rarely do we see. Um, individuals promoting the kinds of things that need to be promoted in order to deal with this very real issue in our communities. I mean, you know, so why do you think that is? Why do you think that we shun that? Uh, Just because we're sometimes always striving as underrepresented people, as black people, to try to make it. The last thing we want is something else that's going to make us look like we're less than or um, not equipped to handle the pressure that happens. For a prime example, uh, salute to Jay-Z right now and him talking about how he receives therapy and go to counseling. Uh-huh. There are some other people that have spoken out about that that are in the black community that starting to talk about their diagnosis and things like that, which is starting to help that dynamic. But you, you, you have to think about what position does this put me in, right, if I am not Jay-Z and I talk about that I need counseling or I talk about I need therapy? There are times sometimes within our black community. Well, I'm dyslexic. I'm dyslexic. I might not even be able to go to my parents. I might not even be able to go to my sisters and brothers. I might not even be able to go to my cousins and let them know that I can't read. Let them know that I have anxiety. They're going to frown upon it. Most of the time, if you are in a black community or in the brown community, you need some type of resource, toughen up. What do you mean? You don't need that. You don't need counseling. We don't go to therapy. Yeah, do right? without it. And, and, and so sometimes you understand why our frustration manifests the way that it does sometimes in urban communities yeah. because we're dealing with a lot of stress. We live in paycheck to paycheck. Where are we unpacking some of that stuff? Where are we talking about my kid doesn't have the resources they need to go to school or how they're going to get to school or talking about, hey, I just saw this guy get killed on my block, but now you want me to go to school and read and learn about two plus two. And so there's a lot of unpacking that we got to do that our kids are suffering from that we're not dealing with. And we're wondering why they're turning out the way that they are. They they have no place to unpack some of the things that they're dealing with. Makes me do a shout out to Dr. Bobby Wright. Remember Mm -hmm. Dr. Bobby Wright? He talked about mental health. He said the the main issue that we need to deal with in African-American communities is this whole stress level that just is a continuous, like a big, you know, 100-pound weight that, you know, is on our shoulders all the time that's that's making manifest if there is any disability, if there is any need for accommodation. It only exacerbates the problem in terms of dealing with it. Dr. Bobby Wright was a a frontier kind of guy. Mm -hmm. He was a pioneer in dealing with the fact that there are some emotional, psychological, physical kinds of issues that the African American community must attend to if we are to, in the long term, do well. And and, and when you talk about that point, you're talking about those individuals making it to where they want to be and being isolated as only black while they're dealing with sometimes the diagnosis that they might be dealing with, that they can't tell anybody, that they hide from the people that their counterparts that they work with. Absolutely. And so how are they handling that? How, 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 how does a woman handle saying that she might need something and not coming off as weak when she needs to be a leader on the platform of that, of that nature? Mm-hmm. All those kind of things are really at play when you're talking about some of this stuff. And so for me, is it, that's why I really have to slow down and really want to do it differently and say, before I start to talk about that disability, 
Let's talk about that individual that environment and that social construct. Social construct. Then we could talk about the diagnosis. And so what I mean by that, you can have an individual that's in one class that uh, symptoms are manifesting the same as the same individual in a different class. In this class, it might be because they don't understand the work. Right. In this class, it might be because there's group work and they're not used to working with people. And so that is two totally different ways you're going to approach handling and accommodating those situations. But if I only look at the symptoms and the diagnosis, I'm trying to do the same things in two different, two totally different scenarios. And that's part of the struggle I've with some of the stuff. With some of the stuff that I teach. I mean, you know, Native American spirituality. Mm-hmm. And black theology, black church. When we start getting into those experiences, mm-hmm. you know, some of those the, the events that's taking place in the social context of those experiences mm-hmm. impact my students differently. Oh, yeah. My students of color uh, are impacted differently when they when we recount. What's right. going on? The history of slavery and all you know, all the stuff that's going on. Oh yeah. Or you know what's going on with Native American community and things of that nature. The the ostracization, the school boarding, all the stuff that 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 impact a culture is impactful of how these folks perform. You know, and 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 whether or not I mean, you know, it 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 can produce uh, levels of depression. I mean, you know, uh, levels of huge stress. level. Th- th- think about what you just described. And, and, and you're talking about teaching black theology. Yeah. Now, think about if you're a black student in that same class and the professor is white delivering that content. Yeah. How does the professor be ready to perceive their black student as you talk through these things that you're breaking down? How do, how do our male professors receive our young ladies while we go through this Me Too movement, yeah. right? Th- those things are all important because it might be essential. Woman, Isn't it critical? It might be a woman with anxiety. Who, who mom or somebody or her herself has been sexually harassed or sexually assaulted. And how do you deal with that as a male professor? How do you unpack that? And, and am I sensitive to are, it? Are you sensitive? Right. And not even that you need to know that that young lady has been sexually assaulted. But am I sensitive to being able to see the signs of, you know, what, what, what is being impactful? And, regardless if you see the signs, are you just delivering and interacting in such a way that it's inclusive and not closing off because you are using your narrow-minded point of view of your way of thought about things? And so Ooh. that's what sometimes what's really tough about those things. And so okay. sometimes you might have a class where you're talking about slavery. How do... A white professor sometimes unpacks slavery with that black student. How does that black professor sometimes unpack with that white student who wants to learn, but his family keeps telling him that black people are dumb and illiterate and you don't learn from Negroes? How does that black professor then receive that white student to unpack that in such a way that they can still teach that student? So that's a whole nother area, though. I oh, mean, yeah. you know, what you start talking about, though, that kind of training, I mean, you know, when I look at, you know, the kinds of things that are offered up in terms of professional development in institutions, mm-hmm. I, it's not, that's not there, man. I mean, you know, I mean, the, the, those kinds of things are, I think, groundbreaking kind of things that you're talking about that might be the future of addressing this kind of issue in terms of accommodations and disabilities. I'm, uh, it, it, where, where is it happening in the country where there is a uh, separate training mm-hmm. for professional development that allows people who are instructors to sensitize themselves and become more able, if you will, to deal with that kind of concern. Is there any programs that you know of that's going on like that? Uh, well, for, for one, I just put it out there. Uh, 
there's a national conference called Association of Higher Education and Disability ahead. Our national conference is in um, and is, is in Boston this year, July 9th through the 13th. I actually be one of the presenters there, uh, and there would be tons of presenters. But one of the uh, sessions I'm doing is talking about uh, how do you lead as a disability provider with your identity? Right. And so unpacking that uh, a lot of times people are put in situations and positions where they're not understanding who they are. I know that when I walk in these institutions, I'm a black male at a predominantly white institution. I understand how I was and my culture has been oppressed. I take that in the work that I do and understanding that. How do I make sure others with disabilities are not being oppressed? Sometimes people want to leave that at the door. Mm. And so I don't leave my identity. Well, sometimes people at the want door, you to leave that at the or door. they want you to leave it at the door. And so I bring that kind of stuff with me me I'm just different in that sense but understanding that dynamic I need to know how I present in that environment because I'm coming to then talk about underrepresented people as I'm an underrepresented person within right. that environment right. myself and so what does that actually look like and what what does it mean and then I also think that sometimes institutions want to do the right thing they just don't know how and so how do I work in such a way that I can simplify it how can I give metaphors how can I give examples how can I break this down in such a way that they can understand it and and, and that's what I mean by the philosophy that a person with a disability is not disabled unless their environment produces barriers that don't give them access and opportunity and so what I mean by that if you build a building right now and you put a second and third floor in there I love to say it all the time if you don't give me stairs and you don't give me elevator me and you just became disabled to that building to right. access right. The, the second and third floor and now that I can't access the second and third floor I don't have an opportunity to receive those resources okay. let's break it down in the community level right if I have mental health conditions and I need services and I can't access those services in my neighborhood you're now telling me that I need to get on a community bus with my symptoms to try to make it across town to receive services. They do that to to, to gay, lesbian, transgender, and bisexual people all the time. All the time. All you the know, time. Uh, and touting the fact that, well, well, we don't have enough of a population here to have those kinds of organizations or institutions. And so you got sisters and brothers who are traveling two, three counties away to find services, you know, to deal with whatever the issues that they might be having. They got to search them out and then come back into an environment where there's like, you know, 95% denial in terms of, you know, that, that accommodation being met with in terms of services and support. And how do how do people in the LGBT community seek out the right providers that are not trying to diagnose them because how they sexually identify? Right. Because that, that's a real thing, too, because sometimes people are trying to diagnose you because your sexual orientation. Right. People are trying to give you certain therapeutic things because your sexual orientation, not necessarily your diagnosis. And so how do we be careful that we're not sending people or interacting with people in the LGBT community? community in basing their sexual orientation off their diagnosis and not saying that their sexual orientation cannot make a diagnosis be produced because the environment can be so cruel where you get an onset of depression and things like that. But let's not make that their salient. Let's, let, 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 I'm going a, I'm to a, I'm a flip the script just a bit on these last few minutes. I want to talk about something that has been interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, of late there was this horrific kind of uh, crime that took place in Chicago. I'm not going to go into detail, but it's been all over the news, right? It's, it's impacting the Hispanic community, right, in a, in a full-fledged way. Um, 
And I was looking at the, as I was looking at the, you know, the proceeds because, you know, it, it literally stopped media for a minute, you know, and, and all media focused in on and they had the police was given, you know, you know, the details and all of this. But what, what, what I was looking at, Zeb, was the fact that I was asking myself now, we've got, we got some, some interesting time in here. Mm-hmm. We, we've got the immigration issue going on. Mm-hmm. We've got the issue of the, the destruction of DACA, you know, mm-hmm. the, dream, the Dreamers, you know, mm-hmm. legislation. Then you've got this crime that's taking place. And then you've got this image of this community of people who have been devastated by what's going on. Isn't that what we're talking about today aren't we talking about isn't i mean how does something like that and the combination of things personal tragedy national kinds of stress that's taking place based on immigration and then just the imagery that's being portrayed in terms of how media does what media does how is that impactful of that community and what does that do to to your ability to accommodate and deal with disability say in the hispanic and latino community how do you think that's how do you think that's impacting for, for, for one i think um we, we have to give institutions space and place for those individuals to be able to come and receive services that they need by people that identify with them, like them, for them. And what I mean by that is our Latinx people need to be able to go to institutions, uh, not just of higher ed, or not just of education, but institutions and organizations that provide services that... Right. I didn't see a lot of church people there. I didn't see a lot of, you know... Even, even, even that, I need to start seeing people. And so this is why I'm so adamant about staying in a disability. I need to start seeing black and brown bodies in disabilities, in mental health, in these other arenas where we are providing these services, because sometimes we're going into these places to your point, And those Latinx folks are receiving uh, services from people who culturally don't understand the way can't even so, speak the language, can't speak the language, but the way that the family operates in the Latinx community sometimes is very different than how it operates in our white and white brothers and sisters families. And so when you're talking about a family structure and you have this Latina coming and saying, well, this is going on with the immigration. And I know this just happened with my cousin and a lot's going on. I, I, I just can't do school right now. I can't do certain things right now. I need to move that test away. What do you mean? Why can't somebody else in your family take it all? What does that have to do with you? That's what you're talking about. That's what I'm talking about. How do I then understand this is going on? And when my Latinx brothers and sisters come to me, I don't frown at them. How do I make it to a point where I'm in Walmart, right? Let's be real. Let's to our Latinx people. Oh, yeah. How do sometimes our white brothers and sisters... Sometimes, how do our black brothers and sisters treat our Latinx folks that are speaking Spanish and upset? Right. Because they're speaking Spanish. Because their, their, their daughter speaks English and Spanish and the mom might not. And so now we're all offended. Why? What's going on? Why? Yeah. Because then I will then point to those same individuals and say, there are some things culturally that you do with your family well, see, that's, that's, that we don't then denigrate or be derogatory towards. And so how do we start to slow that down? When you're talking about accommodations, 
how do we start to accommodate people in the everyday life and not think about it as we're making it less than and that kind of stuff? It needs to be a part of my everyday life that I want to accommodate the human being that you are so you have space and place to be your that's best. That's what I want to talk about. And I think that's what we need to talk about more. I think that's what we need to really, really deal with and wrestle with. And I wish we had more time that we could deal with it. But the fact that people just want to keep on doing business as usual despite mm. the insanity mm. that's going on around them. I mean, you know, it's, isn't that kind of a disability? I mean, the, the, the ability... Uh, the, the the ability to be so neurotic that you can, you know, earthquakes of mm. emotion can be happening around you, and you say, well, but, you know, I've still got to go to the... And, you know, you're acting like it's not happening. And, 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 and I'm not qualified to diagnose, and so I don't want to say everything's a disability, but my thing is, I think I'm a firm believer that he, without any diagnosis, we all have mental health crisis. Yeah. And so even when we're talking about the gun laws, and we're like, let's teach teachers to how to shoot and have guns. And so when they have a bad day, and they got access to a gun? Is that what we want to promote? Think about that. And so when people are talking about these kind of different issues and things like that, I'm not going to say that everybody that does a mass shooting has a mental illness or anything like that. That doesn't mean they weren't at a mental bad place and state currently when they created that act or did that act or whatever they were doing. Road rage, all road that rage, kind of stuff. All, all that kind of stuff. But that's also unpacking because that person with road rage that blew the horn, that cussed you out, that stuck up their middle finger, uh, is not upset at you. They haven't unpacked or had counseling or therapy or around the things that they're really struggling with, like they can't pay their bills and they can't do these other things. And so we're not unpacking the things that people are really dealing with at a very stressful level. Do, do you get a lot of resistance to people when you st you tell them that we need to slow down and unpack this stuff, when we need to to maybe restructure? I mean, because that, 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 that's a, a serious challenge. When you say, you say, wait a minute, man, before we start talking about what we're going to do with these kids, how mm -hmm. we're going to do this, we got to rethink how we are looking at mm -hmm. young people. We got to rethink how we do things Mm. In a normal day, mm. we might have to change that day. We might have to, you know, we might have to move some stuff around or even throw some stuff out and put some more stuff in. Do you get a lot of resistance to that? I, I get a lot of resistance. And, and so just because I'm frank, I got to be frank. You know where I get most of my resistance? I get most of my resistance from our people of age. And it's always amazing to me because I think about as you are aging, ableism is now affecting you but they always like to talk about well when I was a kid we had to do this and when I was a kid we had to do this well I want you to understand when you was a kid did you understand the hegemonic society that was at play that forced you to operate in that context because of the content you was living in and so for me when we start to talk about these kind of things we have to bring that kind of stuff to the forefront because most of the time the resistance is coming thinking that we're always trying to give somebody something easy or maybe the way that they just gave it to you was wrong and so there's a time and place for tough love but there's a time and place to give access and opportunity because there's real life real world things that are going on and occurring every day as a black man I can't neglect the fact that police brutality is going on and black males are getting gun down. That affects me in my work. I need to be able to go to work and have people around me that can give me space and place to be able to grapple with those kind of things. And so how are we receiving those things and not neglecting those things that are going on? How are we receiving our, our, our Muslim students? How are we receiving our Muslim people in the community when they have head jobs on, right? I give you a very simplistic thing. You might go to Walmart sometimes and it might say, uh, go around to the front on their vest because they're deaf. How many times do you see somebody with a vest on like that where the person is screaming and yelling because they're not paying them attention? And so then another person next to them gets upset and say, well, don't you realize that person is deaf it says it right there or you didn't realize the person that was screaming and yelling can't read mm. Zebediah it's been a wonderful having you over 
in the studio. We're gonna we're gonna miss you. But we can do it through from Cornell, you know. We'll do it from Cornell oh, yeah. University. And, and and I'll be back on the holidays, Doc. This 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 is all love, man. It never stops. I appreciate you, Doc. All right, love you much. Until next time, listen to Building Leaders in Cultural Knowledge, WVLP 103.1 on your FM dial. We also WVLP.org. Until next time, we'll see you at the morning.